Welcome to Conversations with Karalia, where we take a nuanced deep dive into all things related to spirituality, sexuality, power, and awakening. My name is Karalia, and I'm your host for this journey. I invite you to relax back, open up, and get curious. And don't forget to subscribe, like, and share the love. Are you ready to realize the self, to resolve your shit, to rejoice in daily life? Join Karalia's community via her online platform, The Toolbox. Get ready for a paradigm shift in how you experience yourself and your reality. The Toolbox, where you'll find everything you need for the spiritual path, view teachings, practices, community, and a teacher who cares. Find The Toolbox at toolbox.karalia.com. T O-O-L-B-O-X dot K-A-R-A-L-E-A-H dot com. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name's Karalia. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Karalia. I wasn't quite sure if I was going to do more interviews uh, focused on ProFest, but I have. Uh, with Ali, who is a good friend of mine. We've been friends for 15 years. And the conversation itself doesn't actually focus too much on profess, but more looks at the underlying emotional landscape that many of us have been through over the last couple of years. Love speaking to Ali. Love the way that she listens and responds and holds space. Mm. I'm just going to say, with no further ado, Let's just dive into this conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Um, my computer did crash a couple of times, so we've had to splice together the recording. So there might be minor little jumps, but otherwise the audio is good and the video is good. And I hope you stay right to the end where I reflect on what unfolds in the interview. All righty. Let's head in, shall we? Ah, so welcome to Ali. Ali is a Haikomi practitioner. She's a kirtanist, which means she leads and sings kirtan. Um, we'll come to that, no doubt what it is. And she's a mum. Ali and I have known each other now for about 15 years. We met in Wellington. We were part of the same Sangha, which is a yoga community. And we actually ended up living together um, when I was a new single parent. And through this whole, we actually, we had a long period where we didn't converse that much, but when COVID started happening, and particularly in the last year, Ali and I started to voice message back and forth. And it appeared that we were coming from kind of different sides of the divide, but where we, what kept happening is we kept meeting on common ground and sharing our perspectives and really listening to each other. And I so appreciate, this is my cat. Um, I so appreciate the way in which Ali communicates. So Ali, no further ado, welcome to Conversations with Karalia. <laughs> Thank you, Karalia. And I also just want to um, echo that back to you because um, I've noticed for myself that it hasn't been an easy conversation for people to have, that there's been a lot of um, outright blocking or ghosting of the conversation. Like you bring it to the table and it's like, oh, everyone's disappeared. Um mm-hmm. 
So the fact that you just kept on turning up and having this conversation and we just kept on connecting in with each other, it was it was a balm in the whole process. So thank you. Mm. I mean, I think for me, because I value and respect your perspective and you were seeing things differently from where I was. And so I was really curious. I was like, well, what are you seeing? What are you feeling? Because I just allowed space for, you know, maybe I don't have the full picture. Maybe I don't know what I think I know. Um, so you, you, you were at ProFest, right, in and out. So we will, we'll get to that for sure. But let's just touch on briefly cat doesn't want to go away um haikomi not everybody knows what haikomi is not everyone knows what kirtan is so just for context can you just briefly describe those things yeah um haikomi came into my life when i was in need of um healing myself so i started out in haikomi as a client um and what i discovered is that it's a type of modality that um brought my own wisdom through that that the practitioner was holding space in order for me to just bring through whatever needed to come through. And it created a, a type of somatic resilience where I was able to be with more of myself. So we'd, we'd sort of just move into my body. I would feel the sensation and then we'd get curious about it. Um, and by the end of a really intensive period of Hakomi as a client, um, I came away going, I hold space for my friends all the time. Perhaps this is something I can do. Um, and it's a very respectful, gentle approach to knowing thyself, the, the, the sort of the maximum of know thyself. It has a really good, um, a kind of a good scaffold of how we can look at ourselves. There's no demonizing of our parts. It's all about honoring everything that arises and building the somatic resilience, like the body intelligence to be with whatever is arising mm -hmm. so it's more rather than like talk therapy it's more of a somatic embodied uh, inquiry into what is present and embracing integrating all parts absolutely and it's very self-directed and the, the person who's holding it is just keeping it safe keeping mm -hmm. it safe and keeping it um a sort of a self-reflective back of bringing through that highest wisdom um mm. oh it's a beautiful approach mm-hmm and then Kirtan, because Kirtan was one of the ways that you got involved in, in ProFest. Tell us about, for those who don't know what Kirtan's about, what's Kirtan? Um, well, it's a call and response style of learning sacred chants. Um, comes from the Indian tradition. Um, I got involved in it probably about 12 years ago as someone who was um, responding. Um, and I just had this yearning and burning within me of like, I want to do this too. <laughs> so at a certain point, um, I stepped up and I've been through a huge growth in terms of Kirtan, um, just what it is to lead, what it is to hold space. Um, and it's through musicality, it's through singing, but you don't need any of that. It's more of a heart bhakti practice, a devotional practice. I recognize in myself that I'm quite a devotional person. Two, I don't know what, you know, like I don't have a guru or anything, but um, it's in service of love, of bringing love forward, of um, training my mind um, and orientating my heart. So it's, it's, it's a yogic practice. Mm. Yeah. yeah, thank you. So let's dive into a little bit of ProFest, although that won't necessarily be the only thing we talk about. Um, yeah. 
what was your perspective first, just to set up some parameters or frameworks, what was your perspective on COVID and the health measures being taken? Did you get vaccinated, mandates? Like just quite succinctly, if you can, I guess, position yourself. I know, right? It's a big thing. Um, It is a big one. And I think um, early on I discovered that facts weren't going to convert anyone and that we were actually dealing with paradigms, a health paradigm. And um, I would say seven years ago when I gave birth to my son, my health paradigm did a big shift. Not to say that um, I it was a new paradigm for me, but I was now walking the talk of like, okay, um, I have an immune compromised child. How do I how do I support him to function and you know be a amazing baby and not be like sensitive to everything he was you know proving to be food sensitive to so much stuff and so we went through this big healing journey where I brought in health practitioners and sort of a team Um, and through that process I just learned that there is a bigger conversation around health that there's a lot of um, repair work that we can do on ourselves and then when we do that that body intelligence and that healing impulse does the job so my paradigm isn't so much around I am broken the virus is going to kill me it was more around well that's curious what's that doing can can I make the terrain of my body as robust and as resilient as possible and what measures do I need to do for this novel new virus and so my research went in that direction um, which ended up being quite a different conclusion from where the government went. And I put that down to different health paradigms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm, okay. So you've got this different paradigm that you're operating under as such. And profess, did you know that it was going to happen? Were you part of like the original movement to head down to parliament on that Tuesday? Like how did you get involved? Yeah. Um, I'd been to the, I think the first big one, I think it was August or September in Wellington, um, about 20,000 people turned up. And it was a very euphoric experience of prior to that, I felt like we were an invisible voice, like whatever it was that we represent and from all, you know, we've all come from different ways into land there, but whatever it was that we were representing, it was invisible. There was no dialogue or discussion or airtime. And so when protest hap- uh, when that first protest happened, um, all of a sudden I was like, we exist, our, our narrative exists. It, it, it's demanding some airtime. And it was an interesting piece for me because I'm a, it's not safe to be seen, it's not safe to be heard, you know, sort of core belief person, but it actually felt more safe to be seen. It felt like it was safe. Yeah, we had to be seen. And it was interesting for me that the um, it was kind of like a demonizing of what we were trying to bring to the table. It felt like there was a sort of, um, they're not Kiwi. This is an imported narrative. This is, there was a lot of like, we don't represent society. And sitting with that, I was kind of like, well, maybe we just need to be bigger and louder. (laughs) We need to like allow ourselves to be seen and be heard for who we are. And um, so for me, it was like, I'm not that stereotype. At least I hope I'm not that stereotype. And if I am, 
let's discuss it. Like, how can I, how can I rectify any negative images around this? So for me, it was a dialogue and a conversation of, of just being there. Um, I didn't, I wasn't in the organizing group of ProFest. Um, I jumped onto the, the convoy telegram group and I was like, awesome, this is happening. So I was part of the Kapiti group that, um, was doing all the banners around the Kapiti area in terms of we jumped onto the overhead, the overbridges on the motorway. And um, I was amazed at how many people turned up to that. It was packed and we were just one bridge. And it was mm. packed for hours and hours and for hours and hours we just watched the cars go underneath. And we had this beautiful, like, you know, there are, there are cars that are in the convoy and obviously there are cars that aren't in the convoy that are trying to get through. And some of them would just be like, you know, I'm just finding my own business driving past and others of them would give us the one finger salute. And it was like, yeah, this is a really polarizing <laughs> um, position, but there was a sense of celebration. And I think that's my word for ProFest is it was a sense of celebration all the way through. And I even hold right to the end, it was a celebration. Like even mm. at the end, it, I still feel just like, just warmth and warm regard towards everything that happened. So how did you reconcile the different, um, some of the posters, some of the rhetoric, some of what was being said in terms of, you know, hang the politicians and death penalty and, you know, there should be more Nuremberg trial, like all of that stuff that was a part of it, you know, it's debatable like the percentage or how big, et cetera, but it was definitely there um, mm. and it was on, yeah, it was part of it. So how did you reconcile it? Because I know you and I know that that is not part of how you <laughs> perceive and interact with the world at all. So yeah. did it make you feel uncomfortable standing alongside people who are calling for those kind of things? Uh, um, I think everyone needs to express what's true for them. And that, that personally wasn't true for me. I was on, um, I guess, what you could call support groups that had a lot of that rhetoric. And it. I could see that for me, it didn't have any service it didn't have a way of offering into the conversation um but also I recognize that I don't do I don't do that style but other people do and I'm just a fractal of the whole and so I didn't feel it in me to judge the condemnation that my group was getting nor to judge how we were being perceived out there just I just wanted room for everything. Like everyone needs to express. And I don't feel that, um, I don't know. I don't feel like it. I mean, it didn't go any further than just rhetoric. Like it wasn't like someone was going to do it. It was just rhetoric. So how can sure. you know that? I mean, I can't remember his name now, but that one guy who sent something like 90 or so emails to Jacinda, basically death threats and constant harassment, et cetera. Yeah. You know, like when I look at it, if I was Jacinda on the other side and I'm seeing that, you can't know that someone isn't going to necessarily enact it because expressing that stuff is the opening up, the normalization of it's okay to talk like that about people or about politicians. Mm. Yeah. You know, and I know that's not who you are. So yeah. did you ever I mean, feel the need not... to push back on it or to say it's not okay? Or I, I didn't engage with it. Like it just, I think people who were looking into it probably engaged with it more than I did. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't my set of 
how I was rolling and it wasn't who I was hanging out with. So it just, it, it sort of passed by in a way that it wasn't, it wasn't what I was there to represent. And mm. I barely noticed it, to be honest. Like I unplugged from all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I can't, I can't offer much to that conversation. No, it's just, I just, um, I appreciate what, what you're sharing around that. Cause it is a question I've had in terms of the reconciliation of those different things. Um, so when, when you did arrive at ProFest, what was your experience on the ground? What did it feel like? What was going on? How did you, how did you experience what was there? Yeah. Um, I think I'd like to go back just a little bit before that, because I think, um, a lot of people there experienced severance, the, the energy of like a death, like things have been taken away, things have been cut off. And um, what was really striking and illuminating for me was that we can experience severance, we can experience death at the same time as experiencing emergence. So Mm. I feel like ProFest was a product of emergence, not a product of severance. While there are people there who still had grievances and were still working through the severance, which totally natural because that is an ongoing thing, at the same time, there was emergence, and I feel like that profest represented that. It was it was the emerging spirit of like, well, what do we want? If this isn't working for us, what do we want? Um, and it did. It it floundered for a little bit, and then it emerged into a very wholesome village. Um, and I know there's a lot of talk about the periphery versus. Um, the center but in the center I would walk in and have a sense of like I know exactly where I need to be and it was chanting for me <laughs> um, and you know I even ended up on stage chanting with the Hare Krishna because they were like okay crew come on I'm like I guess I'm part of the crew at the moment um, so yeah the um, the emergence aspect of it was amazing and there was a lot of that coming through of like cool, we've created this and we've got that. And there was people just like, how can I help? What can I do? So Mm. spirit is different when you come in from, this is something emerging. This is something we're creating. And Mm. yeah, it's, it's a different um, blueprint to how we dialogue with it in a way as well. Mm. I think that's what really intrigued me about it was that it wasn't planned, wasn't organized, it wasn't externally imposed, it wasn't there wasn't even like clear strong leadership necessarily. But like you say, it was like people gathered and there was some intention because obviously tent pegs went in the ground on that first day, as much you said. Yeah. Yeah. But then that was the sense I got was that this was a spontaneous emergence of a community in a space that were aligned in a common way, regardless of the different kind of range of beliefs that they might have had yeah Um, and how do you do that right like that was a little experiment in itself yeah that's what intrigues me because as a country as a as a as a globe you know we're going to be facing all kinds of intense challenges over the next 5 10 15 20 years with climate change etc and my sense is that the top-down imposition regulatory model will not be able to react or respond quickly enough and that we're going to need as communities that ability to emerge solutions to arising problems um, yeah yeah I really hear that and I think um I mean I've worked in government agencies and I know we have metrics and success outcomes and they're measurable um and that's really the opposite of emergence so um you know in a way we're coming up against um how do we plan 
to, to sort of resolve what's happening as a pandemic versus what is emerging from the people. And, um, I mean, you know, sometimes they can sit by side, side by side, but not on this occasion. They didn't. Mm. They actually had to go different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one thing you've already touched on is, um, I guess, the emotional landscape. And that's something I found quite lacking often in dominant narrative media was an acknowledgement of the emotional journey that people have traveled through the pandemic, regardless of whether they were vaxxed or unvaxxed, mandated or not mandated, et cetera. So I'd love to know from you, what was your like emotional journey like? Or what did you see in the greater emotional landscape of the collective? Well, I love this question. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's. Um, I think I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna name three emotions, and we'll dive into each one: um, anxiety, rage, <laughs> um, grief. So those will be my three emotions. I, I really felt like I got an exploration into anxiety, being the first one, um, and. Yeah, I think there's an acknowledgement um, that it really uh, took my nervous system out. Like I just felt like I I turned into the crap, the crappiest mother ever because my nervous system was just like boom, I'm off, I'm out, I'm out. And at a certain point, I had this lovely mirroring back to me of what it looks like not to be anxious, and while also getting the sort of the enormity of uncertainty. Like there can be a sort of a non-anxious but a denial, but I came across, you know, people who were actually embodying, I'm fully cognizant of the enormity of this changing environment and the landscape here and also, um, you know, sort of worst-case scenarios that can happen, but just not being anxious around it. Mm. And, and so for me, what I sort of landed was, urgency and anxiety were really closely related and I had to start questioning whose timeline am I on like Mm. what am I playing out here is this timeline serving me or do I need to go to a different timeline in order to like just let that anxiety have the space it needs in my nervous system which doesn't do anxiety very well like I'm just like shaking and reactive and Mm. wasn't doing a good job of anxiety so I um, just got really more discerning around what information I was consuming because um, uh, both sides of the coin had doomsday, you know, like it was, there was fear all over the place. And um, I just I just felt like I needed to pan out to that discussion, which is more around, I don't know, the human species massive sixth extinction. And what does that look like? I mean, it's like an even bigger conversation and what am I doing in that space? And um, and then it was like, well, what's the human evolution of this? What's our trajectory as a species? What's our trajectory of our consciousness through this time? And all of a sudden, the urgency just went, boom, doesn't exist. There's no mm. urgency. There's just what's now. And so I was, yeah, I started tuning into the a different timeline. Mm-hmm. I'm, not the, I'm not doing the timeline of like we have to resolve this now or else my children are going to be taken off me because I don't want to get vaccinated mm. it was which was one of the narratives that was coming through and it was like who planted that 
<laughs> yeah, I heard that one too. Someone said that to me and I was like, look, I have no idea if that's going to happen. I'm not afraid of it happening. I'm not anxious. She's like, but, but what if they turn up and they knock on the door and they want to take yeah, your yeah, child? Yeah. And I'm like, if that yeah. happens, I will handle it when it happens. And I trust yeah. that I have the capacity, the resilience to be able to roll with that in that moment. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I love how you just zoomed yeah. back and put that, yeah. put what's been happening with COVID and the pandemic in the larger frame. And I think that this is critical to recognize that COVID in a way is an invitation to us as a species to examine how we're emotionally relating to things and how that might be leading to decisions or behaviors that are not beneficial for our survival as a species. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Um, and so the other thing that um, allowed me to dissipate the anxiety was um, quite a while ago. Actually, I've got it here. I bought this book. It's an amazing book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow mm. by um, Francis Weller. Um, anyway, I had this one night where I was just ruminating, ruminating, and just getting really anxious. And I was like, I'm not sleeping. I'm going to go downstairs. And I picked up this book. I opened it. I started reading and I got a paragraph in. And all of a sudden, all the ions of anxiety that were just around me just went vump. I was like, that's interesting. <laughs> anxiety doesn't coexist when I start moving into grief. When I do my ah. grief work, I'm no longer trying to, like, stop something from being present. And I think that was all the, the anxiety energy. So I was like, I'm going headlong into grief. <laughs> yeah. And, it was amazing to move, like, I mean, my heart, for some reason, this story has ripped my heart open in a way that no other story has. And I'm like, mm, I'm not sure why. I mean, the Earth's um, extinction event is really troubling and disturbing for me, but it's just too big mm. for me to, like, access at any level where I feel like I've got any agency. And I think this is probably a common, you know, narrative for many people, like, I'm not going there. But for some reason I could go there with this one. That's what I wonder too, is that because COVID in some ways was controllable and manageable from a government perspective, that the government almost was a bit relieved, like, fuel, we can do a good job of controlling and managing this yeah. according to these particular parameters and this paradigm. And we don't have to think about climate change or extinction for a while because we just need to do that over there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So for me, it was more, it was a titration of going into like uh, collective grief. Like I, I can do this one. Um, and just the smallest things would just be like, oh my God, you know, like my heart would just break open. And also the other side of the coin of grief is connection, gratitude. Mm. Like I'm, I'm learning to connect. In fact, I'm not learning. I need to connect because grief is about this necessity of connecting. And so it became a real outward movement into community for me, which, again, I hadn't really prioritized that in my life but only because I hadn't accessed that that um, that messenger agency of grief and connecting and the um, yeah the the beautiful gratitude that comes when you're like I'm I'm losing everything and yet I've still got all this um, yeah so yeah hearing you speak on this makes me wonder if collectively there was a lot of anxiety and fear right and 
I wonder too, the actions that the government took probably made a lot of people feel much safer, right? That a lot of people felt safe with the MIQ restrictions, with the lockdowns, with the vaccine policies, et cetera. It made many people feel safe. It settled their anxiety. But in doing so, what I wonder, I guess, is that if it means that people didn't have an opportunity all the skills or resources necessary to go into the grief, the grief of a fast-changing world, the grief of what is being lost, the grief of change. And so there was kind of like maybe a missed opportunity as a culture to become more conversant with no, grief. Yeah. yeah, I don't think it's a missed opportunity. I think it's right here, right now. It's what's mm. needed. Um, mm-hmm. And, oh, you know, I'm just remembering this beautiful story um, that I read to my son. He's six years old. Um the Snow Queen by Hans Christian Andersen. It's an incredible, like I was reading to him going, what? This is like um, the Bible at the moment. So this story, do I have time? <laughs> yeah, do it. Of course. We're, we're making it up. <laughs> um, so the, the opening scene, right, is this goblin and he's the most evil goblin. He's like, he's called the devil. <laughs> but this goblin creates this mirror. And when you look into the mirror, all that is good, wholesome, and natural um, is obliterated, and anything that is ugly is amplified. Mm. And so this mirror creates this distortion of view. And the goblins are incredibly excited by it, and they take it to all the corners of the earth so that everything is seen through it and distorted. And then they're, like, even more excited, so they fly it up to the heavens, but the mirror starts, like, jangling in their hands, and they drop it. And it's like these shards spread throughout everywhere and shards go into people's eyes so that their eyes are distorted and it goes into their hearts so their hearts turn into ice. Mm. And then the, the goblin's like, yes, this is awesome. You know, he's delighting in this. That's the opening scene of the story. I'm like. Great children's story. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's these two, I mean, as is any sort of archetypal story, there's these two simple poor children who then play out this drama so Gerda and Kay I think their names are um Kay gets a splinter in his heart and a splinter is in his eye and so prior to that they've been having it's really demonstrating the care and the love that they have for each other then he gets this these splinters and all of a sudden he's he's cynical he's scoffing at everything and he's delighting in the ugly like it's beautiful entertainment Mm. for him and then he gets entranced and entrapped by the snow queen and taken away to her kingdom and so Gerda is like what happened is he still alive and she goes on this massive journey um and it's long like it's it's a lot of storytelling and which I guess demonstrates a lot of her learning to tune into herself to follow her path to listen to nature all these sort of aspects that as a society we're we're kind of ignoring these and then I sort of cut to the end of the story she gets to the kingdom where the snow queen is and she comes across this crone and she's like crone will you help me and I remember pausing at this point going what will the crone give her um and the crone says I have nothing to give you you need to go you've got everything you need Mm. and I was like Oh, there was something deeply relaxing in that, and also like, oh my god, I hope she's, I hope she has. <laughs> <laughs> I 
And so she carries on in and all she does, she sees Kay, she wraps her arms around him and she cries. And as she cries, she melts his heart and the splinter comes out of his heart. He wakes up and then he cries and the splinter falls out of his eyes and he sees clearly. And I was like, it's grief, it's grief. Like I remember that moment of like, this is a 200-year-old story, I suspect. I don't know what the timeline is on that one, but it's so relevant to today. Like mm. that grief is what's needed now. It's the it's the rupture and repair work. And we need to find a way to have to be conversant in grief. Like, how do we have this? It's full of ritual, it's full of honoring, it's full of connection. It's- So listening to you speak about grief in that way, it does make me wonder as a culture, as a society, as a country, is how do we create spaces and invite people into those spaces in order to meet with and process their grief? Is it possible? Do people, will people want to do it? Oh, come, let's feel all this grief. (laughs) Yeah. But I think that's the yearning that we have for connection. Like it's there, like the Gerda and Kay story. I mean, she traveled years I don't I don't know what the timeline was but she went through some seasons and it was that yearning to be connected back to you know her beloved friend again so it's like that yearning exists within us so now how do we create that space to feel safe enough to be vulnerable to meet that yearning because Mm -hmm. you know it's an acknowledgement of everything we've lost sacrificed consented to um you know, and and that we have also had a part in that. That I I I said yes to this, and I've I've had to sacrifice that. Um, and also, it comes with oh, actually, that really hurts, and I I need to acknowledge that. Mm. I don't know. There's some there's some sort of emotional literacy that um, I think everyone's being demand. It's being demanded of. We can either mm. ignore it and get sick, or we can actually start listening to these emotions and. And it's like create those spaces. And there are people out there, like we started a grief and gratitude fireside circle. I think about it actually was the week after ProFest finished. Mm. Um, ProFest finished. And then that week we had a grief and gratitude circle and it's fortnightly. Um, and it, you know, I, I have a slightly different relationship to grief. Like I love grief, whereas I think a lot of people enter into grief going, I don't want to feel this. Um, but I love it. Like I think it's got such an honourable um, connecting beauty beauty to it that um, it's like, yeah, bring grief on. Like if I'm not feeling grief, then I'm like, I'm probably not opening my heart either. So yeah. yeah. I, I definitely second second that is that grief. Of course, it's the emotion of the heart, like in Anadia Judah's work, Eastern Body, Western Mind. She talks mm-hmm. about grief as the the demon of the fourth chakra of the heart. And of course, love is the not the opposite as such, but we grieve because we love. They're mm-hmm. intimately inter, interwoven. And if we're afraid of grief, we became become afraid of love and then if we're afraid of love we're afraid to connect and I think this is part of what's gone on and so many people you know no matter where they sit per se here people that have lost businesses people that have lost jobs whether they were vaccinated or not affected by mandates or not so many people have been affected by COVID those who have lost family members you know whether it was death because of COVID or death with COVID there's still up and down the country 
pretty much everyone has been affected. There is likely grief that everyone's experienced. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah. On both sides. On every side. Yeah. I mean, it's just I said both with sides. Like, too. Yeah. <laughs> every side. <laughs> All the sides. We're in a circle now. Yeah. Um, I yeah. love that what you started a grief and gratitude fireside. What was the last? There was another word there. Fireside circle. Yeah. 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 I lo- and, and was that like a spontaneous emergence post professed? It was needed. It was really needed. Um, so, yeah, I think it was. I mean, I think it's been simmering there for a while and it wasn't um, my initiation, but I was like fully like the biggest cheerleader for it. Um, and so I've got a friend who's hosting it um, with an outside fire and he holds space so well. Mm. And I think it's really beautiful to bring that male energy into that grief gratitude space because um, it can be very confronting, I think, for, for many men to go into that space. They're good with anger. They're good with rage. You know, maybe I need a bit more of the rage and anger sort of circles. <laughs> but it's nice to, like, be like, yeah, I love this. This is awesome. Let's keep doing this. So, yeah. Mm. yeah. Let's talk about rage because it's the other major emotion that you um, identified in terms of this landscape. So we've got anxiety, which is, of course, fear-based, and then grief. And, yeah, yeah rage. So as you started to realize that rage was part of what was coming up and that outrage against what was happening and that not more people were outraged, how did you work with it? What, yeah, how did you dive into it? Yeah, um, I listened, like I do a lot of podcast listening and every now and then one comes in which just helps me to like navigate something. And this one, it was a complete uh peripheral like something I'd never chosen to listen to but it came in and it was a Black Lives Matter conversation and um, what I really loved or the takeout that I took from it was um, there needs to be an acknowledgement of rupture there needs to be an acknowledgement that something's been ruptured here and so I was like yeah I just I just want this acknowledgement of rupture like and I had a friend who um, I think she phoned me the day after, which is amazing. She'd been on a retreat. She comes out and the landscape's changed yet again. I think she was on retreat for three weeks. Things were shifting so fast. And she and I have also had very similar conversations that you and I have had. Um, I've had two of you <laughs> like stuck by this. Um, and she she was like, wow, this is really, I can see how this is affecting you and, you know, your lifestyle is going to be really impacted. Um, my partner's a teacher, so, you know, we lost income and all this kind of stuff. And then on top of that, we've got these uh, these vaccine passports to live by. And um, she just acknowledged it. There was mm. just an acknowledgement that diffused the outrage enough that I could work with it. And I was like, oh, I, I, I wish this for everyone. And in that diffusion, I was able to feel the other side of the coin, to feel simultaneously both sides of the coin. Like we're in a system that discriminates. I have been on the side that has tacitly gone along with discrimination. And now I'm on the side that is the underdog, the underside of that coin. I'm I'm experiencing the whole of this coin. Um, And so there was a sense of like, camaraderie with every 
culture or group that's been through this before and that I'm just getting a slither of a taste of it and that my outrage is because I'm not speaking up for those people and I was like shit I'm guilty of that myself so it was a real sense of um it was humbling my outrage took me to humility (laughs) I'm so guilty of this yeah yeah um so I love a, that the way that you're able to see. Oh, I feel discriminated against. Oh shit! What about all of those people that have been felt that for a long time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you I were able to see. Yeah, because yeah. it's the outrage of someone not. It's just saying, "Hey, this doesn't work for us. This isn't okay." Um, so yeah, I just felt like I need someone to to say that back to me, and I did have that, and then I was able to really just diffuse enough of that to to go into the whole of it. Like yeah, I'm guilty. I'm totally guilty. So mm. <laughs> that was something that struck me as well. You know, like I could understand why they were introducing vaccine passes, you know, and could debate the merits or not merits, and whether it would actually have any beneficial impact on you know the cost bloody blah blah irrelevant to that though what I noticed was there was no acknowledgement of the impact on those who would be in essence sidelined from society and I would have loved to have seen acknowledgement of that and and kind of like a welcoming and a say even to say look you know this is going to be a temporary thing we acknowledge you're not going to be able to gauge it in society for you know we've but we've done the assessment and it seems like this is the best for all of society but hang in there because we'll, well, you know, you'll be able to come back mm. when things change. And even that. It's a really different flavor, right? It's a it's, really different flavor. That's it. It's such a different yeah. flavor because there was a sense, there was a demonizing. And I, I get that for many people, they did feel genuinely unsafe being around unvaccinated people, regardless of what the science may or may not have said, because the science kept shifting, obviously, with the variance and the source, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that emotional landscape, the emotional literacy, right? Acknowledging people's emotional experience of unfolding events. Mm. Yeah. So I've, I've found that experience healing because I had someone who was able to defuse my rage in such mm. a way that I was able to start contributing again. Um, and so I started looking at these, these emotions of anxiety, grief, and rage as, well, what's, it's a sensation in the body. What's the higher octave of that sensation? We can take anxiety and turn that into excitement. We can Mm. take rage and we can turn that into gratitude. We can take rage and we can turn that into empowerment. We've got all the ingredients there for emergence. And so Mm. that's why I feel like emergence has come through so strongly. It's like we had to do that work at the lower octave in order to get to the higher octave of it. Mm -hmm. So I feel like it's been an incredible personal journey and an, an incredible opportunity for anyone who's um, landed on this side or that side. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm curious if that um, journey work is, is there for, for you and sort of navigating this time as well. It's mm. a good question. Um, what I notice is because I, in my own personal work, I've been so much around facing into fear and anxiety and really owning those things when they arise so if it was arising in me I just immediately turned in and did the work around it so that I wouldn't be motivated by anxiety Mm -hmm. or fear Um, and there was definitely grief I gotta say you know when the first lockdown happened I got all excited I genuinely Mm -hmm. got excited because I was like (laughs) 
Whoa, never lived through this before. I'm really yeah. curious to see what happens. This is like a brand new kind of path in the virtual game of life, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, even though it meant that, like, you know, the trip I had planned to go teach a training in Mexico was all these different things I had to let go of. But that's also part of how I operate is no attachment. So it's a recognition that, sure, this burns, but what else opens up? Mm. Um, and so I do feel that my orientation to reality has meant that my experience over the last two years, I've it's it's been pretty epic to tell mm. the truth, you know. And I mm. I did I decided to get vaccinated because it just felt like the course of least resistance, and I didn't feel like there was any danger to my system in doing so. Um, yeah, I'm just feeling into the rage piece. <sighs> anything in that I don't think there's anything in particular to speak to it what I've loved the most though is these kind of conversations and being able to examine what's happening through a much broader lens than looking at the different beliefs that people might be holding around what's happening and going well what's our shared experience and everyone is having a shared emotional experience regardless of what they believe yeah Mm. yeah yeah and um and I honor that. Like I just feel like the this has been such a rich time for us to see our shit collectively and individually. And um yeah, I'm doing my bit individually and and holding that space collectively. It's like, yeah, let's let's dive in here. There's stuff to be seen, there's stuff that um doesn't serve us. Mm. And that's which doesn't serve us too. Yeah. Mm. So coming out of processing when that ended what did that feel like for you in the last couple of days and then after that was it just an ending or yeah um I feel a little sacrilegious sharing my experience because I know a lot of people were traumatized by it and that they they had a lot of work to go through it um I felt quite euphoric (laughs) (laughs) um yeah, I mean, I remember this definition of trauma. It's not what happens, it's how you respond to what happens. Um, and I just felt like the bigger picture was playing out, that there was a flow there, um, that people were being seen for who they were, like the true colours were coming through. It's like, that's not a bad thing to see that. Um, and in terms of that falling apart or breaking down, it's like, no, it seeded something. We had the most amazing people come together and we met and we talked and we connected and we shared. And six months, six weeks ago, it's six weeks ago since it yeah. finished, I think. It's not, yeah, just, it's not that long ago, actually. So last week we had a Kiritan camp hosted at the Hare Krishna community, which um, I was sort of like the, I'm going to plant the seed and see if it happens. Um, and it happened so effortlessly. It was so easy. And we had 50 people turn up. It was just one of the most beautiful experiences. And that that happened through the connections of being at ProFest. Um, it, was, it was waiting to happen and it just needed the right people to come together. So here's this constellation of people coming together that would never have constellated otherwise. Mm. You know, it, it, was, it was pretty epic. <laughs> Mm, I, mm-hmm. I, I think we're just one example. Like I think there's lots of these emergence happening um, and will happen and and they're going to be seeded in such a way of like we experienced something that was more real than what we've been told is real. 
it's mm. more normal than what, what we've been told is normal. And mm. maybe, that's, maybe that's the battle at the moment is like this new normal. What is, what is new normal? Like what is being normalised at the moment? And do we want that to be normalised? Do we want that to be our normal? And that's for me, you know, I'm, I'm heading down a path where actually I don't want that to be normalised for my child. That's not his future that I subscribe to. So I'm going to put my foot in the sand or my flag in the sand or whatever that is, you know, to say this is my version of normal and normalising the activities around that. So, yeah, it's in some regards there's a lot at stake and in others it's just like actually it's just happening. (laughs) Mm. So what do you see as the new normal that's being, do you see that there's a particular normal being pushed or imposed or I I I think I said it before around the psychology of safety versus the psychology of resilience Mm. the psychology of safety is becoming our new normal and that requires a um a, a narrowing of how we turn up in the world you're not treating me or I don't know it's kind of like you don't make me feel safe so you have to stay away versus can I go to where my sense of safety is, and then can I just expand that a little bit more? And that that little bit there on the edge is the resilience part. Mm-hmm. Do we have a language around resilience and what does that look like? Mm. So I'm interested in that one. Like what's the psychology of resilience mm-hmm. and how do we normalise that? Mm-hmm. That's I, love, I, I love that because we're going to need it. We're going to need to be resilient as as communities because we don't know what's coming. We don't know what kind of shocks the country, the world is going to experience. And I like how you frame that in terms of a psychology of safety, like let's become as safe as we can is like that. And then a psychology of resilience is like let's increase our capacity to meet and be with whatever arises. Uh-huh. And, that, and that's that includes- so, so, I was say that's so beyond, but it's got nothing to do with belief either. Yeah. It's about the ability to meet and engage and be with whatever's showing up. Yeah. And I do feel like the paradigm of health that we currently have is entrenching the sense of psychology of safety versus a paradigm where you believe your body has the innate ability to heal and we are um, tuning into our body to make it as resilient as possible. Then we're moving into a paradigm where we can actually have that psychology of of resilience Mm -hmm. Um, and I can see how with with making the body as healthy and resilient as possible and using vaccines in a way that is needed because there's no you know vaccines have been very very beneficial in lots of different ways for preventing lots of different things and so I like to move from an either or into a best practice for kind of using both right that's individual choice right like what's right for you isn't necessarily right for me and you know it comes down to the acronym that I use for um I learned it um for my birth plan um like how am I going to what's my ideal birth plan and what's going to happen if I if something goes awry and I need to make a decision like what's the intervention and how do I assess if that's right for me so it's a beautiful acronym, BRAIN, B-R-A-I-N. What are the benefits of this intervention? What are the risks of this intervention? What are the alternatives to this intervention? I, what does my intuition say about this intervention? Intervention, And N is um, like a non-intervention. What happens if I do nothing? 
Mm-hmm. So when you bring all of those ingredients in, it becomes a very idiosyncratic answer for oneself. There's no one size fits all for anything. Mm-hmm. It also becomes um, a very empowering choice, a consensual choice. Mm-hmm. And I, I just felt like we're heading down a path where those, my ability to discern and using that acronym um, is is kind of being sidelined for like, just do this for the greater good. And I'm like, well, there's a big conversation here. Mm. Who's good? And and what about the alternatives that can also give to the greater good? And mm. yeah, there's, there's a lot to unpack in that. And I don't know that I'm the person to unpack it, you know, in this forum, but yeah. But it's it's just, you know, tabling it. I'm like, there is a bigger conversation to have here. Yeah, I agree. There is a bigger conversation and it does touch on as a community, the greater good, how that functions. Um, and something I think it's worth pointing out too in that acronym of brain, the I, intuition, is that there's a difference between intuition, which is coming from clarity and intuition that's coming from conditioning. And, I, I totally hear that. And it's, yeah. it's one that I'm really interested in exploring because the I, I've seen the I coming from, um, you know, from conditioning in so many cases. Um mm. And so where do you get to that clarity and how do you discern that for yourself? And that's, that's a life journey in itself. Yeah. Um, but that's also my job is like, how do I hone my radar to, to, to work out what's coherent for me? Mm. And even that is like, you know, what's coherent for me based on now <laughs> or based on when I've kind of got a bit more um, view? I don't know. Like it's a, it's a really amazing conversation to enter into and an exploration Mm, I agree. It is an exploration. Um, What it makes me feel like is that regardless of issue, regardless of belief, almost regardless of perspective, that it comes down to growing great people where people are conversant with emotional literacy, where people have the capacity to meet and feel what's present and digest it. Um, where people understand trauma and how to resolve trauma, where people can listen and respond in beautiful, respectful ways, no matter what they believe. Um, And like, if we have a country of people that operate in that way, then whatever happens, we're so much more resourced to be able to respond in a way that's beneficial for all. Yeah. And I don't know if there's going to be government agencies that will do that for us, but I think individuals (laughs) are. That's the thing. Individuals are, and we gravitate to this. It's like I can see some emotional literacy there. I want to have a conversation with you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think it is. And I think that's why ProFest, even though I didn't believe what people were believing, why I felt drawn to it, because it was the emergence of community from the ground up supporting what was needed. And that particular thing of emergence is what I feel like we are going to need as a country. So, yeah. Yeah. Ali, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. (laughs) Yeah. We had a few technical issues, had to splice a few things together. But so much love for all that you bring and the way that you're showing up. And thanks for engaging in those conversations with me through it all. Thank you so much. And I just, um, I really, really appreciate what it is that you're bringing through because there's so few people who are willing to have this conversation. I just think it's bold and beautiful what you're doing. So thank you. Alrighty, so that was Ali down in the Kapiti Coast. I can feel the the tenor, the nature of these particular conversations evolving. And at some point, I'm you know with conversations with Carolee, I'll start um, having conversations with people that have nothing to do with 
professed or nothing to do with health measures, et cetera. But there is still that sense of wanting to contextualize and speak to those who are there and to hear what they experienced and what they have to say around it. I really loved how Ali focused on the emotional journey, the emotional landscape of what unfolded for her through the COVID journey. Because, you know, from the perspective of we're all human, we all have hearts, we all feel things, whether we're aware of those feelings or not aware of those feelings. And some people would have had a lot of anxiety in their bodies, for example, and been in fight, flight or freeze, but not been necessarily aware because it's so familiar. It's it's so normal. Um, and so, you know, when I look at this event, and, I, and you can see that from speaking to Ali, those are the questions I'm asking is how as a country, as a culture, do we become more emotionally literate, more willing and able to feel what's present and more able to own it? Um, I think it was really instructive the way that when Ali noticed that she was outraged, that people were not outraged about the vaccine passes, that it separated her out and she felt unable to connect. And it wasn't until her experience was acknowledged by someone that she felt seen and heard. And so some of that rage was able to dissipate and then she was able to reach out and connect again. And this is a really important part is the role that each of us can play with our friends and with our family to just listen and acknowledge their emotional reality without necessarily attempting to argue with them or make them wrong or explain stuff, just to acknowledge what it felt like for them. Because what it felt like is what it felt like. It, that, it, it just is that. And when people feel that their experience, that their emotional landscape is being acknowledged, then amazing things happen. So my name's Karalia. This was another episode of Conversations with Karalia. I'm not sure who I'm coming back with next, but I invite you to return. Are you ready to realize the self, to resolve your shit, to rejoice in daily life? Join Karalia's community via her online platform, The Toolbox. Get ready for a paradigm shift in how you experience yourself and your reality. The Toolbox, where you'll find everything you need for the spiritual path, view teachings, practices, community, and a teacher who cares. Find the toolbox at toolbox.caralea.com. T-O-O-L-B-O-X dot K-A-R-A-L-E-A-H dot com. Thanks for listening to Conversations with Caralea. And trust that you enjoyed that nuanced deep dive into spirituality, sexuality, power, and awakening. If you love my take on the spiritual path and you're looking for more insights like this, then make sure you subscribe and like. You can also check out my website, karalia.com. That's K-A-R-A-L-E-A-H.com. And subscribe to my weekly newsletter.